Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of Faith Unaltered Open Mic Night, where we get together and hear your questions and hear what topics you want to discuss and uh, discuss our own. So we're here, and I'm here with my co-host, Josh Davidson, tonight. What's up, Josh? How's your week, man? What's up? What's up? It's doing good. I actually having a pretty good week, man. I finally got somebody hired on my, the, the crew to help me with my maintenance over the six buildings I'm in charge of. And uh, it's nice to have an extra set of hands. Tell you that much. It's worth oh, yeah. its weight in gold. So I'm having yep. a pretty good week this week. That was a great encouragement to me. 
Yeah, they um, and, they say yeah. teamwork makes the dream work, right? Heck yes, man. <laughs> it's a, it it's hard. It's hard being by yourself. It really is. There's too yeah. much stuff for one guy to do, and it's hard to keep up with. So even if he's new, and there's a lot of you know stuff that I got to kind of getting caught up on, it's already worth its weight in gold, man. Just have the extra set of hands for stuff. It's really going to be helpful. So I'm excited right. about that. But you know, it's been a pretty good day. Right on. Well, our co-host Tyler Fowler isn't with us tonight, and I'm sure some of you could probably guess why, even if you're friends with him on Facebook. But if you're not, Little Eden is on the way. Yes, Tyler Ooh. is having a baby tonight. Well, his wife is, but, we'll, you know, he only has babies on the show. When he's <laughs> mad. <laughs> no, but seriously, yes. guys, shout out to Lacey. For him. Yep. Shout out to Lacey. And we are praying for you guys. And we encourage our audience to also uh, say a little prayer that everything goes good. So, yeah, Josh, um, we're on an open mic night, man. Uh, what do you what did you what do you is there anything specific you want to jump off with? You know, honestly, one of the things that 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 I kind of had stewing in the back of my mind is something that happened to me today that was really an encouragement. And it's something that perhaps has happened more often than I think, but didn't stand out to me the, quite the way that it did today. I had to go to a Home Depot, which I do constantly because I'm doing maintenance. Uh, and the first Home Depot that I went to had most everything that I needed, but not everything. So I literally had to drive a couple towns over to the next Home Depot to find the stuff that I needed because it wasn't at the, the first Home Depot that I went to. And so despite my frustration of having to leave one store and go to the exact same store somewhere else to find stuff, when I got to that second Home Depot and I pulled in the parking lot, I got out of my van and I was walking toward the door and I was approached by a lady who said, excuse me, sir. I turned around and I'm like, hi, what, what, what's going on? She's like, uh, my name is so-and-so and, -so and I'm, I'm with this organization. Are you interested in helping women who are in recovery? And I looked her in the face and was like, you have no idea. Let me tell you, I'm actually the maintenance person for one of the largest homeless shelters in Northern California and it's a Christian-based program. We're on the same team and we like, hit it off immediately, started trading some testimonies. And she was a super, super great encouragement. And so it was one of those times where one of those big in, in interruptions and what seemed like a stupid inconvenience ended up being something that was really able to bring me out of that funk and kind of en encourage me anyway. And so I got to meet, you know, extended family in the kingdom today, just kind of through happenstance, if you want to call it that. And it was cool because she actually had a lot of connections with me personally even though we had never met each other um she had she had heard of the church that i that i you know uh frequently go to or well not frequently I, I i go to once every february for a uh a northern california meeting for all of the prison ministry uh leaders in northern california get together and have a meeting and talk about all the the all their successes and the red tape that they're facing and warning each other about the different county laws and overcoming COVID regulations and all that. Uh, and so the worship team at my church, with I'm, which I'm a part of, provides worship for their conference when they do those meetings. And so I, I have the privilege of being in the room for, for much of that going on. A lot of those guys own, um, let's say, uh, what, what's called um, recovery houses. Ultimately, it's kind of a house that's devoted to people who are trying to get clean and sober who can get off the street and go live there and everything they do is based biblically right and so they live in these houses they constantly have bible studies and the woman that i met it was three and a half years clean and sober uh and had just gotten her kids back and they were all living together and it was just like i know how big of a deal that is because i know that process is just stupidly hard 
Uh, and so that like, it was just this, I got to celebrate somebody else's victory today. And it's on, it's fresh on my mind that if we're looking for it, life is its own reward. A lot of the time, if we're just willing to pay attention to what's happening and what it is that God's putting in front of our faces, what an opportunity, man. It was amazing. So everybody, uh, what is your testimony, uh, about something like that? Have you experienced what Josh has? I know I have, and I was actually in a booth at my job and we get a lot of traffic uh, going off. Hey, we just got somebody in the queue. Hold on. Hey, Chris, how you oh, doing? Hey. Be with you in a second, buddy. Oh, hey. yeah, sure, sure, man. Um, I got a whole different subject. Uh, no, that's fine. That's fine. So I was actually in my booth and a lady approached it wondering where the DMV was. And, you know, we give directions all the time. It's just something that's pretty cool that we're able to do and interact with the public and uh i got out and she noticed that at this time we wore ties right and my tie clip had a uh cross on it and she's Mm -hmm. like are you a christian and i was like yeah she's like oh that's so awesome and she's like she came she was a slave she was human traffic she was a slave in her country in her native country and her english wasn't that great but she gave such a just wonderful testimony testimony of how she escaped it and came to the US and how she was able to raise her son in a land of freedom. And I thought that it was just so encouraging. And wow. it, it makes you really realize that, you know, even though we're we're uh close together as far as in this one globe, we could be worlds apart, you know? And her whole life experience was something totally different than what my life experience was. And she still found Christ, even through all the heartache and the pain and stuff like that. And for me, that was a great encouragement that day for me too. So I hear you. But hey, Chris, what's up, buddy? Um, You know, not much. I just saw you had an open mic and I've watched your show a few times. And um, I didn't, you know, I just thought you know, might throw a topic out there and just see if it has any kind of interest to anyone. Um, because, you know, recently, I guess, you know, I grew up in a Christian church for almost 40 years, you know, ever since I was eight years old, I got baptized and, um, to be honest, a lot of the Bible was a mystery to me just because I feel like it was taught to me wrong. I was surrounded by a lot of, um, this doctrine where, you know, you're throwing Daniel's 70th weekend in the future and you're saying it's about an antichrist and, and I feel like. I just started realizing maybe the past three years how damaging this doctrine was and this teaching was. And a lot of people, it seems like it's accepted by mainstream Christianity. And it was a doctrine that no one really taught back in the Protestant Reformation. Almost no one accepted it. It didn't come become popular until about the 1800s. Now, every single church teaches it. That's all. You, that's the only thing you can hear about. And I was came across the Geneva Bible about three years ago. And then the bottom of it, it said that Jesus fulfilled the 70th week. And I was like, what? You know, this is nothing like I heard. And I started reading it all over again, you know, from top to bottom. I was like, you know what? If you read this from top to bottom, it does sound like it's a messianic prophecy. And this does seem to fit. And you go look up when the decree was given. I'm like, wow. So all this kind of fits, you know, 490 years from this decree to 34 AD and then the seven weeks. 27 AD to 34 AD, people think Jesus got crucified somewhere around then. 
why not think that's the the 70th weeks about jesus and he gets crucified and he makes a covenant with many and he ends sacrifice and offering by his death on the cross it makes sense to me right you know so it's like and the more i keep studying this i'm like this should be really apparent for all these guys that are going through seminary you know when they tell you how to properly exegete a text it's like why am i reading gaps in this text why am i um adding all this extra stuff why am i putting a two thousand year gap in here and so now it's kind of gotten almost like a little bit of something where i'm kind of a uh, um real focused on it and i'm and people go well, well chris why are you so focused on it and it's because i can't understand why all these churches are teaching that this messianic prophecy is about the antichrist it's it, it's kind of like it's bothersome to me because I'm like for 40 years, I've heard the opposite. And now I'm like, okay, it's it, apparently not. Apparently you should read it this easy way. Everything fits real easy. Everything looks nice. You don't see gaps. So why is it taught? And I feel like a lot of people are using this deception to get everyone to kind of like, well, this guy can't be the Antichrist because he hasn't made a seven year deal with Israel yet. Cause you know, that's how, what they all teach. We're waiting for the seven-year tribulation to happen. Well, what if the, there's no seven-year tribulation? What if this tribulation is just something that you're going to go through at any point? Or maybe it's a continuous tribulation that's been going on, something that you've got to always be prepared to go through sometime in your life, and you're misreading it as just a seven-year tribulation, right? And what if there really is an Antichrist, but you got everyone thinking, oh, wait, wait till he signs a seven-year deal. Well, what if he signs an eight-year deal? Oh, can't be the Antichrist. He signed an eight-year deal, right? So now he's got you all fooled, right? So I'm just like, and so I'm starting to think this is, seems like a real silly doctrine, but it also seems to have a lot of people fooled. And I was just kind of like, you know, just throwing that out there to people because this, this has just been bothering me a lot lately, ever since I've kind of came to this conclusion. Yeah, absolutely, bro. And, uh, you know, I've always been one that uh, in the end time stuff isn't on the top of my list, but it seems to have this huge, huge. It, I mean, I guess it does hold interest because, you know, apocalypse always do. I mean, we watch movies about it and they make all these crazy movies about it, like, you know, Walking Dead, for example, you know, just weird in, into the world type stuff. Everybody's Mad Max. Ass- yeah, everybody's so fascinated about it. But when I, I think it's dangerous too. I, I totally agree with you. I, I am of the uh, persuasion that the 70 years was fulfilled as well. Um, I come from uh, a church that talk, taught a lot of other different dangerous doctrine. But uh, that is, I think, can be a dangerous doctrine because that's people's focus. And I think it takes their focus away from the gospel, right? And what we're supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to be looking for signs in the sky and this and that. We're supposed to just be aware of them, right? We're supposed to, uh, one of the things that really like when I was doing my study of the eschaton is uh, obviously, you you know, we, we attend churches where a lot of people, they don't even know the word exegesis, right? They don't know that word. Um, I, I, when I start talking about it to sometimes, I'm I, it, it, you're basically speaking christianese or theologianese to them because they the the your average layman is like you're using too big of words what does that even mean and i'm like you don't know what exegesis means oh i was and, the same way until three yeah. years ago so but yeah and, and you know and that's the thing it, it to me that is a problem and we are not 
we're not inoculating. We're not even we're just isolating our Christians to certain uh, stories, certain certain doctrines. And I think that's dangerous when you when you single out a doctrine, you build your whole church around that that one doctrine. Right. Um, I think that the church needs to have a diversity of well, every church should have a constitution. It should have a, a doctrinal statement, right? But that's not going to be limited to eschatology, right? So, yeah, I think it's very dangerous. You're absolutely right. It wasn't taught. John Nelson Darby was the one that really got this off the ground, this whole idea uh, about the end times, pre-tribulation rapture, and all that stuff. Um, I am firmly convinced that... Uh, uh, the whole I, notion of 70 AD, a lot of that was was what Revelation was about, the fall of Rome and so forth. Um, I'm really not uh, one that takes a dispensationalist view there. So, um, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, and I understand why it bothers you. And I think that's one of the things that probably drive a lot of people away from uh, uh, Christianity in itself because, you know, you're waiting your whole life just looking for the end to come. And one thing that really struck me when I was doing my study in eschatology was that the last day, the trumpet will sound on the last day, and then the dead in Christ will be raised. So it's kind of like, okay, there, there seemed to be some sort of uh, uh, miscommunication between me and my pastor at that time. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And, you know, of course, you know, there's been ways to explain it and stuff like that, but it really doesn't line up when you actually do a deep dive in the exegetical work and, uh, and, and pick apart each text. But yeah, I totally agree. I think the whole 70 weeks thing was, was a, a prophecy uh, for the Messiah. I think it all fits perfectly well. Um, Josh, you got any opinions there? You know, I was just kind of mulling over uh, Daniel 9 just now. Um, and I kind of see where you're talking about at the very end. There is a bit of a kind of confusing statement. But um, I'll be honest, I haven't really spent a whole lot of time on eschatological texts other than perhaps Ezekiel and Revelation. Those are where my th those are where I got kind of fixated for for a good while when I was actually. Oh, hey, Dale, what's up, man? Uh, while I was uh, kind of looking at some of these things, it's not a topic that I spent a whole lot of time on, so I'm not sure that I would have much of value to say about it. Um, but I, I also kind of like David, don't don't really necessarily take a directly dispensational view. Like, like if I if I'm talking to my pastor, my pastor is firmly like a pre-trib rapture kind of guy. Um, I usually, if I'm talking about the end times, it's purely for the sense of urgency that it ought to bring to us. You know what I mean? Um, it ultimately looks to me like the point of all of these texts about eschatology is to really point to us the importance of our our attention, right? Um, I think if there's anything that I could add of value, it's that your attention is your first sacrifice. It depends on where you're willing to put it, right? You're going to invest it in something, right? And so it's like if you're investing your in, your attention on let's say looking for the devil's fingerprints i promise you'll find them everywhere right yeah. but if you invest your time in looking for god's fingerprints i promise you'll find them everywhere so i think it's truly a matter of perspective and intent with what we do with these texts and so i don't necessarily have an answer to your question about daniel 9 but in general that's that's kind of my two cents on eschatological dramas let's say is I think a lot of the time 
our fixation is a distraction um, because ultimately our, our, our fixation ought to be on where we're going, right? You're a lot less likely to stumble if you're watching where you're going. And so I think that's the lesson I've taken away from every, every eschatological text that I've ever read is just watch where you're going, man. You're, you're a lot less likely to stumble and fall if you're, if you're looking where you're going, you know, Hey I mean? Josh, also that urgency, I think was a real thing back then, because I mean, these guys are trying oh, to get sure. the gospel out. And I think that should be our focus, you know, is getting the gospel out to help people put their first foot forward, you know, and that should be the urgency that, that comes, you know, revelation is a comfort text to me, you know, uh, uh, when we get to where it actually talks about the end of the world, it's a comfort text it's like there will be no more tears there will be no more crying there'll be no more suffering you know there won't be any of those things anymore you you know things will paradise lost paradise restored everything is 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 beautiful again you know so to me that's the comfort of of revelations uh the rest i do believe uh all happened within the first century i think most of revelations deals with the fall of rome and and how uh john used the old testament to uh to really relay a message of what was going to happen and take place soon, which it kind of, that's how revelation starts when Jesus says, behold, I come quickly. You know, there's no 2000 year gap. Like you said, I mean, <laughs> how is, how is, how, how would the first century audience even relate to that at that point? You know, <laughs> you know, so obviously we're the, the theologians that put this together back in the 1800s and, and propagated it and how it, just flourished and got popular like a like a, a a bad zombie movie i don't know but it did and 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 it caught on and now it's just blown up uh so yeah dale how you doing buddy welcome to the show yeah i'm good thanks dave i got a, an email from david saying uh, get on here right now so I was right. <laughs> <laughs> and here you are well here we're I talking am. to chris lucas about daniel chapter nine you have any thoughts on Daniel oh, chapter nine. Yeah, I do actually. That's amazing because I just did a show. Um, I, I was on uh, Reason and Theology podcast, and I did a show on Messianic prophecies. Uh, nice. One of which is Daniel nine, and so um, Michael often asked me to do a show on, on Daniel nine specifically, which I posted up about a week ago. So, yeah, I guess um, yeah, like I, I think it's a it is a Messianic prophecy. I, I don't know exactly all what you guys have been saying about it, but. One thing that may be interesting and unique, and I'd like to get your guys' take on it, um, is in terms of the interpretation of the Daniel 9. Um, so some people, some skeptics go for the Maccabean thesis. And one of the arguments is they'll say, look, these weeks of years, they're not meant to be interpreted literally in any way. They're just rough approximates and, and stuff like approximations. Um, I think that, no, they, these are uh, literal years and that sort of thing but it, we can actually get more specific than that because they actually relate to sabbatical year cycles like the seven-year agricultural cycle and so we know when the exact tishri first this is uh, of 457 is when it started and then we have that seven plus 62 week chris is agreeing awesome uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, period until and it ends 27 a.d um just taking it um another thing is you know some people some jews might say well look there isn't there two messiahs being uh spoken of here two anointed ones because there's a 49 right. year period 
and then there's that 62 year period. It's, it's, it doesn't just say 69 weeks and then the Messiah will come. Um, but I, I take the traditional Christian view. And again, what, what is this 49 weeks then? And I think it's the year. I mean, seven the, weeks. 49 sorry, years. The, I do that all the time. I just corrected you because I know later when I listen back, I'm like, ah. No, no worries. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Yeah, exactly. The, the seven weeks, which corresponds to the 49 year period. And with inclusive reckoning, well, that's the Jubilee, right? Uh, so I think that's what it's saying. It's not saying, oh, well, there's 49 years, then one Messiah will show up, who, who that is, who knows, and then another 60, 434 years, then you'll get another Messiah. That's a wrong interpretation. So, uh, yeah, um, anything in particular that about Daniel 9 that you wanted me to say, uh, David, or I guess we could talk about the sabbatical year cycle thing. That's a interesting take. Uh, no, I was going to give it to Chris to see if he had any follow-up, anything else he wanted to talk well, about. Well, I do have a, just a couple of just tiny points. I mean, we can go to the sabbatical cycle, but, you know, one thing, too, that's kind of concerned me about this prophecy is when people say it's about the Antichrist and a seven-year tribulation, I feel like a lot of people will think, like, they got this dead-set view that, hey, because when I, I was trying to run for office the past maybe eight years and every time i try to run it's like almost like people were disinterested and it got really bad in 2020 and 2022 because people are like well this is the end you know because the whole world got shut down and everything and we know this is the end and i'm and it's like i'm like but well, it might only be looking like everything's really bad because the christians are kind of pulling themselves out of politics pulling themselves away and saying oh everything's got to be bad i'm like dude i'm trying to like run with what little extra free time I got. Cause I work 70 hours a week. I got two kids. I'm trying to, you know, do a little bit of ministry. And on top of that, trying to run for office. And it's like, and I'm starting to lose my mind because I'm like, you know, these people are fighting me and I'm like, I'm like, there, we can really do something if we just get the right people in office. Like we can change things like this. This doesn't keep having to go this course, but so many people are fighting me and they're like, nah, don't bother with it. Don't even bother getting involved. Everything's fi fixed and, and they're, and it's like, and everything's supposed to get bad anyway. And it's just like this, like defeatist attitude that everything's got to get bad. Daniel's prophecy has got to come true. And it's like, <laughs> and this that's another problem i have with it and then you got all these people that are like by my sim like you know those like if you ever hear futures teach this stuff and i had one of them on my show recently they're jumping all over the scripture and if you're a new person trying to figure this out you're like man I don't, and they're like well buy my book for 30 dollars <laughs> well okay and and i've been in that spot where okay it's kind of confusing i don't want to i want to learn this all by your stuff but then you start realizing that these people are just messing you around man they don't even know what they're talking like they're not even doing proper exegesis like they're not reading this from top to bottom and coming to these conclusions they start with that last verse and then they pull everything they can here i'll cut part of daniel 8 i'll take a little bit of daniel 11 you know, and, and it's like, and it's so confusing to you when you're a new believer and they're hopping around like this and you're like, well, this guy's the head of the church and he's teaching it like this. And all these people are listening to him. I'm just a new believer that's trying to learn. And you go into this church and it's for like eight years, 10 years, you're all confused, you know? Yeah. So, and then, then one the last problem I have with all this, and then we can, if he wants to talk about the sabbatical cycles, which is, you know, important too. Um, 
is that I think we should be using the, the, these Bible prophecies not to have our pet little end time um, stories, but instead, you know, to be like, oh, look how it's a fulfilled prophecy and use fulfilled prophecy to show that this is a divine book by God and that the, it's look, there's actual real prophecy that came true in Daniel eight, that came true in Daniel 11, that, that came true in Daniel nine. And look at how these time periods are so precise you know like especially like when you take daniel 9 you start from 457 bc from that uh decree by artaxerxes in the seventh year and you stop at like 27 ad and you're like wow this is you can make a pretty good argument jesus's ministry started right around there and if you want to say the the dates a, a year or two off if you want to argue that it still started right around there and no one thinks jesus got crucified after 34 ad so some, so you got that seven-year period, and you got that prophecy that specifically says sometime within that seven-year period. And I think you can use prophecies like this to show people, look, this is a prophetic book. It's a divine book, um, and it's more proof to, like, once you can prove that it was written in those time periods before these prophecies came true, suddenly you've got a little extra something to hand to an atheist or a non-believer. Um, and even when you got professors in seminary, like um, secular professors like John Collins, who says, oh, uh, we do agree that Daniel was written, but we think it was written right around 150 B.C. And that's why he got so much right. Well, if he's already admitting that all this stuff fits. The, he's done did all your work he done already said it all fits the only thing you got to now do is prove it was written before 160 bc and then suddenly it's like okay now you should be able to uh show someone this is a prophetic book so those those are like my last two things i want to get out there let, uh, yeah, what you were saying is interesting. Let, uh, here's what I want to ask you, because here's what my video is kind of mainly addressing. So I'd like your point on it. Um, so, okay, so in terms of um, messianic prophecies, I have kind of a, a different way. I don't make an argument from directly from fulfilled prophecies necessarily, because, you know, that requires with a burden of proof, proving what the prophecy says and also proving fulfillment and we can't always necessarily prove the fulfillment in, in all cases and stuff like that. Um, but I think that we can make it a circumstantial argument from the fact that given what the Messianic prophecies are, we can prove that they're, it's either Jesus or it's bust because, you know, based on the claims of the gospels, there's only one candidate who could even possibly fulfill this. There, there is no other candidate. And with Daniel chapter nine specifically, Michael Lofton was was saying, um, yeah, but some Christians say there is another candidate that basically who is this Messiah that gets killed after the 69 weeks or the, the seven plus 62, however you divide it up. It's Onias the third um, who died in about 171 BC during the, you know, uh, during Antiochus the fourth Hellenizing the Jews. This is what led to the Maccabean revolt. And that's what these skeptics are kind of kind of saying. Well, actually, Dale, you're wrong. It isn't Jesus or bust. It's Jesus, Onias the third or bust type thing. So, um, yeah, are, are you familiar with the skeptics Maccabean thesis of Daniel 9? And what would you say against that? Vaguely, because I think that's like, um, who who is that? Like um, 
Gibbs um, in the 1700s had a similar one to that. I think that's his name. Um, yeah. yeah. But there, yeah, I, I, I there's, there's scholars. Who you know, if it's useful, I have Daniel 9 pulled up here. You guys want me to pull it on screen? Sure. It's good with me. But the, the, yeah, the thing about Daniel 9 and, and what I say to that Maccabean thesis is it, it, when you look at it, it says um, it, to bring in everlasting righteousness. I don't know how Onias did that. I don't know how Onias sealed up the vision and prophecy. I'm, I'm kind of unfamiliar with that part of how they reconcile that. Mm-hmm. Because I because to me, I just don't even see how Antiochus would fulfill that 400 and because, okay, first of all, we know he's praying just with the context of this uh, prophecy. If you go to the beginning, he's talking about the 70 weeks of captivity. He's referencing Jeremiah. Um, well, the 70 years of captivity. So he's referencing Jeremiah, the 70 years of captivity. What's that based off of? That's based off of the Jews um, not letting the land rest. And now so God's going to... Um, put Jerusalem in desolation and it's going to force like the land to rest for 70 years. Right. Yeah. So now when it's talking about those uh, 70 weeks, it's actually saying 77. Well, a seven is sevens. What, what's the seven? Well, uh, a sabbatical cycle is seven years. So, and since we hmm. already know he's talking about Jeremiah's prophecy, when you're talking to someone and I was like, Hey, um, and you were like saying, well, so-and-so didn't pay me back and, and this amount of days, and I was like, "Well, hey man, can I borrow you? Can I borrow a thousand dollars, and I'll pay you back in 70. Now, if you come back to me seventy-one days later and says, "Chris, you got my money," I'm like, "No, I said seventy. I didn't tell you how long." He, that's actually very dishonest and wicked because it was up to me in the context of our conversation when you said seventy, when you said days, like this person didn't pay me back for a hundred days, this person didn't pay me back for a thousand days, and I go, "Well, I'll pay you back in seventy if you loan me." money even though i didn't say 70 watt that was up to me if i meant something different since what we were talking about in the um like the 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 thematic prominence of the conversation which was just the word days you you had no reason to think anything else was being implied that was up to me so just like within this text when it says 77 sevens what well we know from the reading jeremiah it's natural because I've gotten an argument with the futures and he was trying to tell me what means 70 uh, these sevens are 360 day periods. And then he goes yeah. to revelation says you need revelation to know this. I'm like, well, that's a little dishonest. God should have told us because the prophecy starts in 450, whatever you want to say, 400 BC, somewhere in there. Right. Uh, yeah. we, you know, we say 457, but they'll say like 444. So I'm like, it's kind of dishonest for a time period to start and you didn't supply what time it is. So obviously, naturally, going by the context of that. That's why I don't like the Maccabean thesis just off of that alone. And then I don't even see how I can make it fit into that time period. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, that. that's a great point. Uh, OK, actually, before I give my uh, my take. Um, yeah. What about Josh and David? Are you guys familiar with Daniel nine and like the skeptics Maccabean thesis? Like what, what, how do you guys respond to that? If you know about it? Well, I haven't, I haven't gone through it in a long time, but I'm of the similar mind of you guys. I, I, everything you're saying, it, it, it's reminds me of a lot of the arguments I made previously. You know, I don't see, uh, uh, 
the benefit of like what Chris was saying that these things is kind of deceptive if it's, you know, uh, not acted on in the proper time, you know, so it, it, it totally blows the context away to me if, if that's the case, but that's, that's pretty much all I got for that. I'm, I'm enjoying hearing you guys go after it. So. Cool. Uh, Josh, anything from you? Or? Well, I, I was actually, I was actually appreciating Chris's point earlier about, uh, if you if you flip the expectation and how it kind of breeds a, a sort of spiritual apathy. And like I was saying earlier, before you hopped on to, or as you were hopping on, Dale, that I think that eschatological texts themselves, the intention for such a thing in general is to push our attention toward the future, but not in a way that's going to make us uh, uh, a ball of anxiety or, um, you know, an, an, an immobilized kind of apathetic group of people who are just sort of waiting for it to happen. Like, it's supposed to spur us into action. It's supposed to give us an, a, this sense of urgency, right? And so if you don't have a sense of urgency and you're kind of looking at the world like, well, it's supposed to get awful. So I guess it's just, you know, going bad because that's all according to plan. Like, things are awful. You know, it's like, our our inaction is definitely costly. I'm not saying that as because I'm not somebody that's heavily involved in anything like politics anymore. Like I got kind of out of things like that, and I I, I try not to to spend too much time on it because it's very consuming, right? But at the same time, our apathy is is just genuinely costly. It really is, you know. So I I think that it's a lot of this comes back to, like I said before, that the intent of a text that has our attention pointed toward the future is, I think, supposed to be pointing out to us fundamentally also how costly our attention is, right? Like I said, our, our attention is our first sacrifice. We need, to be, we need to be aiming in the right direction. You know what I mean? And so I think that, I think that these warnings and these prophetic uh, uh, texts are actually there specifically for that purpose. It's to get our it's to get our attention oriented toward the, the right things. You know what I mean? It's not supposed you're not supposed to be looking at at revelation as, OK, how do I stack warning signs to look for the Antichrist? Christ right. said, no, you should be alert because I'm coming. Yeah. And, and what it, something you said earlier, Chris, too, is is, you know, people just, you know, waiting for, uh, uh, you, you know, things to happen and not get involved because it's supposed to get bad anyway. I mean, uh, some of the greatest evils that are committed in this world are the, they, they are derived from the indifference of good people. Right. I mean, if, if we're not getting in there to affect change and like Josh is saying, I mean, it should spur us to action in, in, in many different avenues of our life, you know, spreading the gospel, uh, 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 presenting our ethic to the world, uh, ethic that will better the lives of individuals. Um, you know, all those things should uh, uh, spur us forward to do do things. Um, welcome, Jordan. How you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing well. Sorry, let me get the lighting. All right. Well, why so we wait do, for you, brother? Uh, Dale, just, go yeah, for I it, just, man. I just wanted to give my take about that Maccabean thing, and then I'll finish on that. But yeah, so so my take, I agree a lot with what Chris was saying. Look, in, in terms of the timing, it just it doesn't work out. You, even if I grant the skeptic, there are some skeptics who will say that the start of the 490 years is, is 605 BC when Jeremiah received his prophecy. So that doesn't work out, but let me just grant that for the sake of argument. And then if you take away the 483 
years, which is the 69 weeks period, you arrive at 122 BC. This is about four decades after the Maccabean revolt. It's it just the times don't match up at all. So that's a, a, a criticism is that the Maccabean thesis has to say that the the 70 weeks just correspond to nothing. They're, they're just metaphorical, you know, approximations and, and somebody did the math wrong. Secondly, trying to say that Onias is the Messiah that's spoken of in this prophecy just doesn't work at all because when we look at the things that he had to do, uh, number one, he had he had to uh, put an end to sacrifice and iniquity. He had to anoint the temple, the most holy, and these are these are tasks that could only be done in Jerusalem in the temple by the high priest, by the anointed one. And Onias didn't, wasn't even living in Jerusalem at at the time. He died in exile uh, in one seventy one BC about three years before Antiochus even uh, desecrated the temple with um, some scholars think the abomination is a inscription in, uh, dedicating the temple to Zeus is what they put in the temple at, during, to cause the Maccabean revolt. Really? Um, yeah. So it's, um, you know, that Onias died before that even took place. So, but you know, but you know, there's the, that, that second argument, Dale too, which, uh, which is used by a lot of people is the blood of the uh, the Sanhedrin uh, during Jesus's time that was that was spilled in on the altar, you know. Hmm. Um, that's another one that that a lot of people talk about as as a counter to that. So I I, I think the evidence, I mean, the evidence far outweighs. I, I think your position's a hundred percent correct. I mean, at least from where I'm from where I'm sitting and what I've studied. What do you mean the blood of the Sanhedrin? In okay, so so historically, when Rome entered into Judea and stuff, uh, uh, this is close to around around the time of Christ. Uh, the well, that was uh, 63 BC with Pompey, yeah. right? Pompey. No, first no, conquer. I'm not. No, no, not the first conquer, but I, I can't remember. I have to go look it up again. But there's an argument out there that is talking about. Uh, that the fulfillment being when the Romans slaughtered the priests uh, and threw their blood on the altar, and that was uh, supposedly an abomination of desolation. So, mm. um, yeah, I'd have to look it up and, and show it to you. But it yeah. certainly would be an abomination. <laughs> yeah, yep. But um, yeah, so I, I don't, uh, Dale. You got, you, you want to finish up, and then we'll introduce Jordan and have him present his topic. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I think I'm pretty, pretty good. Like I, I, I've given a few, few reasons that kind of the Maccabean thesis is just totally refuted. It doesn't work with Daniel chapter nine, um, mm. that sort of thing. So, mm. yeah. Um, I think Isn't I that who Sam Storm goes by to the Maccabean? I think that's his name, Doctor Sam Storm. I'm or... not sure what what Sam believes. I know he's. Uh, I know he is a. Uh, uh, he is a amillennial, so I'm not sure if he would would go for for that or not. But uh, yeah, uh, Jordan, welcome, man. What's your topic? Hey guys, bud? I'm gonna go ahead and get no. out. That way, other people can talk and share topics. But thanks for having me. Oh on. yeah, no problem, no guys. problem, Chris. Thanks, All Chris. right, anytime, buddy. All right, I'll um, be listening. Thanks. Yeah, man. Bye. All right, hey, um, uh, I'm doing well. Uh, I just wanted to. I guess I don't. I didn't come up with a topic, but I was just listening in. I just wanted to mention that um, I think when looking at prophecy, 
uh, I think it's important as Dale was saying, like how there's not always like a exact fulfillment because there um, sometimes there are like double fulfillment prophecies in in scripture. For example, like Isaiah nine, when it talks about the, the the maiden or the virgin will give birth to a son, it's talking about Isaiah's son, and then is talking about Jesus. So you know, Jews will like unbelieving Jews will say, "Oh, well, this is talking about um, you know Isaiah's son in the next few chapters." And yeah, that's true, but it's also talking about Jesus as a double fulfilling prophecy. And I think that, and this happens like a lot in scripture. And another example I think would be Daniel 11, which is, I would say talking about um, the, Mac the Maccabean Anti uh, Antiochus. But then I think it also has a double fulfillment prophecy for the future anti uh, for the antichrist. So, yeah, I just wanted to present that. Yeah, kind right of on. Dale, you got anything on that? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a good point. Yeah, when when you are making so there are certain prophetic devices that uh, you have to take into account if you're making an argument from direct prophecy. So, you know, for example, God can use double fulfillment and that sort of thing. So that's that's a valid uh, prophetic interpretational device that God apparently uses. But I understanding it from a skeptic point of view, obviously arguing double fulfillment um, doesn't look as cool or doesn't look as convincing because it's kind of like, well, you know, you can apply it to almost anything kind of thing. Right. And you're applying it to multiple, you know, there's, there's also things like prophetic telescoping and that sort of thing. Um, you know, there, there are these various devices that can kind of make it hard. Or, for example, like... What well, Dale, Dale, what, Dale what, do you, what do you mean by telescoping? What does that mean? So telescope... So, like, for example, uh, the prophets would see... When they prophesied about the Messiah, they, they would see him coming on the uh, immediate horizon of history. Like, they would, they would see all of the events that they're prophesying is happening. Like, okay, it's going to happen all at once, immediately kind of thing. But no, when we properly understand the inspired text, we realize some bits will happen partially at certain times, but it's going to take time uh, to, for the prophecy mm. to come to co full completion, right? Because obviously when Isaiah made some of his prophecies, um, he didn't expect, oh, well, it's going to take 700 years for the Messiah to, to be born. Like that wasn't in his head, probably, right? Um, okay. Um, I would disagree with Jordan, though. Like um, I, Isaiah seven fourteen is definitely not about Isaiah's son or about um, the kid, child in Isaiah chapter eight. Just because, again, he that ch those child uh, they fail to fulfill the full prophecy, the messianic hopes, and I think that's once the prophets they kind of realized what was happening. They, they first had their hopes in Israel as a nation, and then the king as the representative of the nation to fulfill uh, what we would call the messianic hopes. But they were humans; they failed. They kept uh, they kept sucking. They didn't bring in the kingdom of God, and this is why the messianic belief developed gradually. They realized, oh wait, there is there is one the king, the Messiah with a capital T T kind of thing, right? Um, so that's how. Uh, the hopes, messianic hopes, kind of developed 
over time and crystallized into an understanding that like, yeah, the, the human Davidic Kings, they're not, they're not going to cut the mustard. Um, so we need, there needs to be the Messiah who's going to come at some point, And he's the one who's going to fulfill all of these prophecies that, you know, the other Kings didn't get to do, didn't fulfill or something like that. Right on, right on. You know, one thing that I that I'd like to point out too is, I mean, when we're dealing with direct prophecy or we're dealing with anything of, of a prophetic nature, there's a lot that we don't know about time, and there's a lot that we don't know about calendars and this and that. So, uh, that's that's fuel for the skeptics fire when it comes to to things like this too. So, uh they will definitely push that on us to uh, that. Oh yeah. Well, it, it's not exact because they didn't get it right. It happened this and that, but they don't take into consideration the times that uh, the gaps that we have in our knowledge of the past, you know? So, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but Josh, you got anything on this? Not really. Nada. No, I, Nada. Like, like I said, I, I haven't really put much of a, a focus or emphasis on eschatological text in a long time. And the one that the ones that were really, uh, let's say, capturing to me were Revelation and Ezekiel, especially the mm -hmm. inaugural vision of Ezekiel at the very first chapter. That was really mystifying. Read it for like three mm -hmm. weeks straight, just over and over and over. It was amazing. But as far as as far as Daniel goes, I've read Daniel probably like three times in my life. I, I really haven't spent much time there. So uh, most of what you guys are talking about are things that I've probably heard before, but have no recollection of. And so I really don't have much to add on, on that topic specifically. Yeah. What do you, what do you think of messianic prophecies then Josh? Um, so that's not end time stuff necessarily, but like, you know, Jesus first coming the prophecies that apply to that. Um, I, I have, well, I've, let's say I've spent a lot more time thinking considering the implications of things in Genesis than I have in most other places as far as messianic prophecy. Um, but I, I find it to be one of the more important things, especially when, when engaging with people who like, I, I had, I had a friend who, uh, who was Jewish, who ended up in a situation where he was homeless and I let him stay in my house. He lived on my couch for like a year and we would do Bible studies together explicitly out of the old Testament because he didn't mm. want to read anything about his Tanakh, right? So I was like, okay, let's just, let's read the book. You know what I mean? So we would go through and it was a lot of the time focusing on Genesis. And that was something that was super, super helpful because Genesis is just like, if you know, if you know, New Testament theology, you can't read Genesis and be like, yeah, there's no Jesus here. Like it's absurd. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I just had a field day for a little over a year repeatedly coming back to some of the same texts over and over and just considering mm. them. Um, and, and one of them that he was really upset by, uh, but we came back to often was Isaiah 53, but I mostly spent a lot of time in Genesis <laughs> because I was like, look, this is, this is the, this is literally the starting point of everything. Right. And if the book of Hebrews is correct in crediting Jesus with being the creator, mm -hmm. like you have some serious implications here, man. You know what I mean? So it's like, those kind of things were were of some serious importance. Um, but, you know, like I said, I, I just haven't spent a lot of time on prophecy, perhaps like it just I, I've I've spent a lot of time reading 
the gospels and reading Genesis and, and a couple of other texts is that those are the ones that I really come back to is like Hebrews is my favorite book of the Bible, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but th- yeah, those, it, they're just not something that I've spent a lot of Fair enough. time Fair enough. on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I like that you mentioned Isaiah 53, because believe it or not, I think that is one of the messianic prophecies where, because we can prove independently the fulfillment, I think there's good historical and scientific evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. That is a messianic prophecy where I think we can uh, make a successful argument from fulfilled prophecy. Um, There are elements. I mean, how do you prove historically that Jesus died for our sins? There may be some issue in in proving every element of that prophecy, Mm -hmm. but Nonetheless, we can prove that a supernatural component of a messianic prophecy took place to with secular evidence and that sort of thing. So I think that's amazing that we have at least that one where we can make a, an argument directly from fulfilled prophecy and have it succeed. Another yeah. one that I came back to frequently enough to remember it specifically was Psalm 22 as well. Um, oh yeah looking at yeah. the you know the just the 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 layout of of beginning to end this kind of you know i'm i'm being placed in the dust of death um and then i'm surrounded by you know bulls or or dogs and it's just like that's obviously a reference to gentiles and then they pierce my hands and feet and this was written before crucifixion even mm. existed and then they cast lots for my vesture and then um the 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 most high did not leave me to, to, to death and, and and just just like this whole thing becomes like I said if you know New Testament theology you just kind of like it becomes so explicit all of a sudden you're like whoa okay wait a minute this was here the whole time yeah right I know one thing that that I, I just want to echo that um, and I kind of want to like finish this topic with uh, what we've been talking about uh with the apathy that it brings and, and bringing it back around to that and not only apathy but it, it can mm. be quite dangerous i've definitely been to churches where they would tell us that we live in a better time than the apostles and this and that and and because we're going to see the end and and all that and to me that's just that's that that can really be dangerous to, to those out there, um, not only for the fear factor for people that don't even understand the prophecies or even understand the faith, but it also presents a danger to uh, uh, getting, like Josh was saying, apathetic, but not only apathetic, but uh, not being agents for changing. You know, we're called to be uh, microcosms for this culture, you know. Um, um, and, and we're we're here to effect change on a global scale, and by living a life that honors God every day, you know. And we're meant to spread the gospel and to disciple people. And if you're just lost on the hype of the end and 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 this uh, upcoming zombie apocalypse, so to speak, then. You, you're not, you're not, you're not where you're sh- where you should be focusing. You should be focusing mm-hmm. on, hey, look, the ur- Paul talks about the urgency. You know, the urgency to spread the gospel. You know, the urgency to further the cause of Christ. You know, that should be your main intent. 
Matter of fact, if it causes anything into the person that has studied these things, like Josh was saying, it should be the urgency. It should be the 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 desire and the prompting to act and to get that gospel out there for everybody. But with that said, I'm going to move on to the next topic because this topic I think is kind of important and I have been dealing with it now for the past few years. And I'm learning that a lot of people are abandoning Christianity because of church abuse. That's the one topic that I think we really need to hit on. Dale, that's why one reason I'm glad you're here too, man, because I know you can speak to some of this. I can speak to some of this. And it is a a big problem. It is a big problem in the church. Uh, There is a lot of abuse. There has been a lot of scandal, even within uh, every branch of Christianity. I mean, the, some of the biggest ones you you see the the Catholics with the abuse scandals that they have, and then you look at the evangelical scandals with uh, 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 former apologists, even that that a lot of us respected for a huge long time. You know, um, these things have have done a lot of damage. So um, I wanted to bring that up. And what what do you guys think about uh, people de- uh, deconstructing, so to speak? based off of their experience in the body. Well, I think the first thing that it tells me is that we should be watching what we do because what we do really matters, especially as Christians. This is something that I've emphasized before um, for different reasons, but uh, something that, that I've said in, in other episodes is, you know, if, if you're going to claim the name, you need to take that seriously. You know, we, we walk around calling ourselves followers of Christ that should mean something first of all to you because it's going to mean something to the people that you make that claim to and they'll be watching you believe me they'll be watching you they'll be experiencing you and you don't understand i I was just telling one of one of the people that i've been discipling for quite a few years now um you know he's having a hard time right now and he's asking honestly does it ever get annoying that i ask you the same questions over and over and i'm still having the struggle with this and that You know, like, why do you keep bothering with me? Are are you tired of me? And it's like, no, dude, you you're an imager of God. You're of more account than any planet or star that's ever been formed. Like it there's this is why it's worth it. That's what we're doing here, you know, and so we have to take ourselves seriously, but then realize that when we bear good fruit, it's not for us. A tree doesn't eat its own fruit. That goes to the that goes to someone else. You know what I mean? And so like what you do matters the fruit you produce matters and if it's rotten poison fruit that definitely matters very good uh jordan what's your thoughts bud um yeah i i I haven't personally experienced this but uh just from you know statistics and hearing things and um friends telling me different things i know that it is very is a very real um, issue and problem uh, with with the church that people have gone through abuse and and then it affects their view on the church uh, later on and so I think one thing that I think we can do as we are sharing the gospel and um, you know evangelizing whenever we have the opportunity i think i think we need to be careful with our words and 
as first uh, Corinthians nine talks about to to come down to their level, like you know how he says to the Jew I'm a, a Jew and to the Gentile I'm as a Greek or all these things like to kind of empathize with them and not not just straight up talk to people in Christianese language where it's like where they don't even know what we're talking about and then mentioning things that may bring up uh, past abuse from from their part of the view and we, we don't even know that we're doing it so I think I think something that we can be aware of is just coming to people where they're at and uh, sharing the, our stories and, and listening to them as well and being intent on bringing the gospel to them, but in, in a way that is life bringing and not a way that we make the, ourselves seem better than them or that brings them hurt from their past and stuff like that. Right on, Dale. Yes, I think I think your question is, you know, kind of what what do we do? What do we say to someone who's thinking about deconverting because they're in an abusive situation? I, I assume you mean like the leadership of a church is being abusive or or something like that, that. That as well, yeah. Or just Christians in general have pushed people away. The hypocrisy, you know, of of some people as well has also done that. And I think Josh spoke well to that. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think hip persistent hypocrisy is something that really turns me off. It's really something that uh, I personally, it pushes my buttons and stuff, right. Whether it comes from Christians or whoever it comes from, um, you know, that, you know, once it's, you have this double standard and it's pointed out to you um, and you you still double down, uh, you just don't care. That really bugs me. So I can I can relate and uh, understand and sympathize with people who are are seeing that there are Christians who are hypocrites and that. And I guess the first thing I would want to say is uh, for the person who's thinking of deconverting with that. Number one, uh, try to distinguish between hypocrites versus persistent hypocrites, uh, because the Bible doesn't say that we're going to be perfect upon. Uh, upon conversion. I, I'm not perfect. I still have struggles and that sort of thing myself from time to time. So we are going to, as Paul says, struggle against the flesh. Um, but overall, our, you know, look at our overall trends. Are we producing good fruit over time and getting better and better or doing our absolute best without the Holy Spirit? Um, secondly, when you do encounter someone who is just persistently hypocritical, and there are people out there, unfortunately, like that. Try to distinguish. Look, uh, remember Jesus. I mean, the, the Pharisees are the perfect example of the persistent hypocrite. And Jesus even comes out and calls them on it and that sort of thing. But he still says, you know, do as they do as they say, or do as they say, don't do as they do, kind of thing, right? So it's distinguish the message and judge the message on its own merits, right? It is the gospel message true or not um whether you know the the bible tells us there are going to be wolves in sheep's clothing so you can't use the bad behavior of somebody who's pretending to be a christian or a sheep and then use that to judge the bible you, you have to judge it 
based on what Christianity itself is and what the Bible, the word of God says and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I guess that would be my thing is sep separate what the people do from um, the Bible message itself uh, kind of thing and realize there are wolves in sheep's clothing. So, yeah. I know one thing that, that just has really gotten me over the years is people blaming God for Christians. That is something that has really irked me with the deconstructionist where like at times it's like, you know what? If you're going to blame God for what Christians do, I feel bad for you. Was your faith ever real in the first place? Was it based off of, of what people do or was it based off of what God did for you? You know, and because, you know, it, it really it really stings me because, you know, you know, the prodigal son came back. Right. But this other son that lived with him the whole time is kind of like that that son that, that kind of slaps him in the face, you know, because he's blaming his father for welcoming back his brother. And I'm just like, good gracious, guys, you know, you're blaming God for what do you what did you think Christians were going to do in a fallen world? You expected too much. Right. You expect when too much out of people. And you know what? And Dale, what what you're saying is resonating with me as well because you can't judge Christianity just based off of Christians. You have to judge it based off of its own merits and, and what it what it what Jesus did. Jesus never said that every church is going to be perfect. He never said that there weren't going to be scandals in the church. Matter of fact, he said it was going to be a hard road to travel. You know, it was going to be a it was going to be a, a right. hard road to 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 plow forward on. You know, it was going to be narrow. You know, it was going to be be uh, 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 hard to get, you know, uh, to get through the, 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 the eye of the needle. You know what I mean? It, yeah. You know, it, it's not going to be the easy thing. And that goes for churches. So um, for me, it's like if these guys base their 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 life, their Christianity upon what Christians do, then was their faith ever real in the first place? Because I've really dealt with this on people that I thought were way mature than this and then they get mad because the church loses its focus and wants to get a fog machine or <laughs> wants to spend it or, or or stops doing some of the great programs it used to do you know and yeah. to me it's just like but you got to have grace you got to have the grace where was your grace when all when all this is going on where was the mercy that you learned from jesus himself that died on the cross for you there's there's one thing I just want to qualify. I see uh, we've got Troy, Troy in here, so I'll let him go next. Uh, but there is one thing I, I do want to back them up, that there are times when it is appropriate to judge, to possibly, or potentially appropriate, let's say, to judge God or to judge the religion itself based on the conduct of the religious adherents. So, for, for example, I do blame Allah for some things that Muslims do because... I believe it's commanded in the Quran, or it is, in, it is according to the religion, inspired from God. So in, in those cases, it is appropriate to uh, assign some blame to the to the divinity or whatever it is and, yeah. and stuff like that. But it has to be warranted, right? Yes. Like you said, yeah. like you were saying before, it has to it has to uh, uh, result from something. Of, on its own merits like if jesus said go out there and kill babies you know <laughs> you exactly. know then you could yeah you could blame the deity right but that's not 
it's it, when Most. you deal with these situations, they end up resulting in the same bad arguments you hear from atheists. Exactly. Most of the time, they, there's just no. That's why I said you've got to differentiate. Is it is it the religion itself or the or God Himself that's morally blameworthy in some way, or are you just blaming God for the conduct of sinful people claiming to be Christians, which the Bible even warns us, like, look, there, there are going to be people out there. So if anything, that's just a proof that Christianity is true, if anything, because it's right. it's confirmed. So, yeah, uh, you know, make sure you're, you're warranted in judging. Before you, yeah. So, Troy, what's up, twin? What's up, my brother? How you doing? Doing all right. So oh, I'm sure you heard the topic. You had something that you wanted to share on it. I'm guaranteeing. Uh, yeah, I, well, I don't want to reverse back to something that it looks like we've moved a little bit beyond. But I was uh, heard that there was something talked about um, abuse in churches. So uh, that's yeah. kind of why I jumped on. Um, I we, haven't we listened were, to what you guys talked about yet, so maybe catch me up for just a second. Well, we we were we were discussing ultimately the the reality of abuse in the church. Uh, and then he asked kind of a, what do we do about it question? Uh, David did. And my first thing was we, we can, well, the first thing we can do is recognize and admit that what we do matters and that a tree doesn't eat its own fruit. Your fruit is for others and it better not be rotten and poison. Uh, and then Dale went on to give some practical advice about, let's say the, uh, um, you know, separating the people from the belief and not blaming God for Christians. Uh, uh, absolutely yeah don't don't blame me <laughs> if, uh, if if i fail to represent christ that's not christ's fault that's right. not god's fault that's my fault and right. there's a lot of times that you could say that about a lot of religions and i that that last part about there is some culpability when you look at what is our religious teaching and if our religious teaching is teaching us to be violent and to be um objectively evil okay, maybe there is some warrant to say maybe the God that you're serving is the wrong iteration of God. Mm. Right? I just want to add, uh, Troy, uh, just so you know, I guess where I am in my little picture here, I'm in Troy. <laughs> this is the wall of Troy, so... Yeah. That's awesome. We're matching today. Your name. <laughs> well, twins more than only once, a Canadian yeah. would say something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's awesome. And I'm drinking milk too. So. Hey, look at me. I'm that Troy. Troy. Yeah. <laughs> Captain yeah. Obvious over there. No, so, <laughs> shut up, Russell. <laughs> this awesome. is atheists thinking of converting. Do not judge Christianity based on David Russell. Trust me. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Does yeah. not represent us. <laughs> <laughs> oh man no no i i think that when you're when you're looking at those things i grew up in a christian cult so uh six years to 19 um it was a drug rehabilitation program no shade on you uh josh um but it got more and more and more twisted the longer that i was there and the abuse that came from the leadership um not just sexual not just uh verbal not just psychological but all of the abuses that you can imagine happened in this place i had to separate god and jesus what i found in scriptures from what i was seeing in what i was considering the church at that point in time um and that's that's 
that's wise to be able to go, all right, what is be aware enough of the Bible, be aware enough of your religious teaching to go to know when it is twisted and and diverted from the truth that's actually in there. Um, you know, study to show thyself approved. That's extremely important. And and we shouldn't let's be like Paul and we should be studying to show ourselves approved. Well, he can quote um, uh, Greek poets and philosophers. Well, we should be just as maybe not as much as we are to the Bible because we need to know our own faith. We need to know our own faith, but we should be familiar with the Quran. We should be familiar with the Book of Mormon. We should be familiar with those books so that when it comes to them throwing shade at Christianity, we can we can call back to theirs and say, are you living up to what your word says? Right. Absolutely, right? dude. And, that, and, you know, that's one thing, Troy, that that I, I totally, you know, I'm so on par with that because that's what it took to get me out of the uh, church I was in previously that went from, you know, a, a quasi-Pentecostal to a word of faith movement, you know, where, it, I mean, the doctrine is just they not i don't want to say doctrines just teachings or whatever they were putting out there which it just it just wasn't christianity at that point it was it was more of an abuse of christianity you know we call it aping the christian faith at the time because it's really uh uh just way out there you know it's not what christ taught so like when you study to show yourself approved you have to study the culture we're we're, we're christians in a culture you know we're supposed to be affecting change in a culture you know not uh isolating ourselves from the culture go ahead troy i didn't want to i want you to finish your point so well that, that, that that's that's part of it is that if you if you have that well-grounded base of knowledge that you can draw from and go all right i have the wisdom that proverbs provides and i have the the deeper and darker wisdom of Ecclesiastes, and I have the teachings of Christ in my mind, and I have the uh, commentary from Paul and all of his letters to the various different situations and the cultural context that he's addressing, then it makes it a lot easier to go, oh, I start, I'm seeing the twists in my own place, and being able to be humble enough to go, yeah, there's some brokenness in our perspective, brokenness in, well, let's see, in the culture of an America, the way that the church has expressed itself, there's some brokenness there. And being humble enough to say that makes a, makes a huge bridge to people that in other religions and in other faiths, when they're going, well, you guys do this, how is that Christ-like? It's like, well, okay, yeah, I can admit that. But can you admit that from your own? When, like, for instance, the Quran says, leave the Christians and the Jews alone. They're following their, they're following their God. So why is there persecution to Christians and Jews? Right. And the Quran is actually calling it out that you leave them alone. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, the, the church in America, like, there's uh, no doubt in my mind that it's bleeding, that it's hurt, that it, there's issues there. But Canada's got it way worse, you know. I mean, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but no, um, uh, in some no, ways, I mean, you're not is, wrong. It, but you, you know, it, it is, and there's a lot of abuse. And my thing is, is that you know, for for us that 
that have grown up in the church that know the teachings of Christ, at some point your maturity level has to be able to separate what's going on in the church versus what Christ is teaching. And there's at times, guess what? We're going to have to get like Jesus. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites all. You know, we have to be those type of people. We can't just sit and say, oh, I'm under this authority and I have to just be complacent or, and isolate myself from the rest of the culture. No, you've got to not only call out your church, but still be a shepherd to those that you're in the culture with, you know, that you're right. that that you're affecting change in or discipling even. <laughs> so it, to me, it's not it, there's no excuse for you to deconstruct because of a teaching that a pastor tells you. You know, yes, you put way too much. At that point, your pastor was your God, not Jesus, mm. if you're if you're willing to walk away. So I, part of me has this, like, and I know I should show more compassion, and that's my fault. But, like, there's part of me that's just like, hey, look, I'm, I'm sorry, guy, but you, you're, you're wrong. You, you're doing this wrong, bro, you know, and, and I'm not having much sympathy. You're giving up Christ because of the way the church acted, because of the scandals in the church and the, because of all the people doing this or that. It, you, that's people. It's not Jesus, you know. Your maturity needs to separate that line, and you need to, like you said, Troy, study to show yourself approved. So I don't know if I went around the table yet, but I'll start with Josh. Go for it, bro. Um, well, actually, I had something queued up here. I was going to uh, draw the attention specifically because look, all of us on here, and I'm including Jordan, you, you seem really rather thoughtful. Everybody on here I know is somebody who is in a position to be somebody who could answer for the faith that they have. This kind of Peter chapter three, be ready to give an answer for the hope. Right. And and as people who are ready to give an answer, that makes us have a certain amount of responsibility. But then also there are those who are actually called in the church to be teachers and preachers and people who are uh, in, in sitting in that seat of authority and teaching. Right. And the scripture gives these kind of warnings. This is something that I wanted to draw attention to because it's not here by accident. James writes in chapter three, not many of you should become teachers. Because you know that we will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If someone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect individual able to control his entire body. Then he goes on to talk about the tongue. But this first verse here is of, of supreme importance to the kind of thing that we're discussing right now, is to understand that, like I said before, your fruit matters, but also understanding that God is going to be looking at you in a in, as a position like really you're standing in like, okay just to draw this a little bit away from perhaps the church and bring it more close to home i'm a father and i have children that's what that means right they're they're little me's running around i'm responsible for them it's absurd that i'm i'm me i'm responsible for them all of the time that doesn't turn off at any point it's just like it's permanent now and so I've been I've been called to this office of father and I can't say that there's anything that I've ever experienced that has been a better theology lesson than to know that I am called father and to recognize that I am not the father but now I have something that draws me into a, a place where I can see my relationship with my children in a way that that translates the the heaviness, the glory of what it is to be called something like that, right? 
to be in that place when they're newborns for all intents and purposes. I'm the giant. I'm God to them. I'm the experience of that peace, the way that Moses was like God to the Israelites as he led them. Like that's what that means to be in this position is you are symbolically representing the position of authority that's been delegated to you by divine intent. It should be taken seriously. Not many of you should become teachers because you know that we will be judged. That is not to say not many of you should be interested in learning about your faith and di dive deeply. No, all of you should do that. But not all of you should try to maintain positions of authority over others because of the fact that it is easy to abuse. It is easy to abuse. It is exceedingly difficult to be a good leader because in order to be a good leader, you need to be worthy of following. It is very select individuals that are worthy of following and therefore good leaders. And that's why there's such a rampant experience for people to be confronted by humanity when you're expecting somebody who's representing deity. And it's like, like David said, some of that's just misled expectation and bad. It's faulty expectation. But some of it is also faulty leadership in general. Like it's just kind of one of those things where with it, like we really that's I think that's just like I have to keep coming. We have to take ourselves seriously. We have to take this seriously. You know, like it's not a hobby. And and like I was talking to Troy last time I was talking to him, it's like you can't just be stacking factoids about Jesus to impress your friends and neighbors. You like seriously, this has to be real all the time, like all of the time. And you it, like it has to be where you're like the, the reason your blood is flowing, you know what I mean? Like the, this is where the sap is, especially for us who are in a position to be like the thinkers. The, the questioners, the investigators, the speakers, teachers, we're on here talking on a podcast and people are listening. We, this is, this is the kind of time when we should be calling to ourselves and to others who are in our circle or influence that what we do matters and we need to take ourselves and other people seriously. And that like the past is really a permanent place. Like you don't get to take it back anymore. Like what, like what you say matters because of that. You know, and so I, I and what you do matters because of that equally. And so I think that that's really, you know, the only thing that I would add to it really is just this, this warning is, is crucial, you know, like it's crucial. I Just to add to that, I, I think that it, it's really apropos that within the Orthodox church, when they're handing the staff of authority to the next person in position of authority they pray over them and one of the prayers is i hope i'm not handing you your damnation that that's the level of seriousness that people in teaching and authority should actually have because every word according to paul according to scriptures every word is going to be you're going to have to give account for. And so, you know, within, within that context, that scripture in James is one of those things that like, take that and make it a red flag. If the church or the place that you're in, say hi. <laughs> um, um, if the, if the leadership is keeping you dumb, 
and telling you, hey, listen to me. I've done this study. You don't need to study for yourself. That's a huge red flag because what they're trying right. to do, they're trying to um, isolate the narrative and trying to keep you as ignorant as possible so that you will never question their authority. And within, within a proper organized church, you should be able to question your pastor. You should be able to challenge him. And if you're challenging him in a healthy way, the whole church profits from that. But if you don't, then what happens is you steer off, you fall off the edge, you get into the cultish, like I, I was raised in it. Like I saw it go from center of Assemblies of God teen challenge to the point where all of the leadership, one got drunk, ran into the wrong side of the road, killed people just because he was, he was drinking so much because of all the abuse that he was doing and feeling guilty for. That's how quickly it can go. So, yeah. Can I back you up? No, no problem. Uh, yeah, I guess I'll just... Uh, so, very quickly, uh, I have a question for Troy, but before I get to that, just just one thing that I noticed about this issue of teaching, because it's, it's something that I took very seriously when I... I was being considered to be a teacher at my church and that sort of thing. You know, I was asking, what are, do I qual, do I qualify kind of thing to be a teacher within the church setting? And I think it, what is the reason for this stricter standard? And it's because we have to understand that natural man devoid of the Holy, without the guidance of the Holy spirit that we have, you know, Jesus doesn't dwell in the unbeliever's heart in the same way he does with Christians. And so there is this sinful, natural inclination to blame the message because of the, the messenger. And I think that verse about the teachers is recognizing that, look, this is just a fact about the fallen world. world, And that's why it's so important that you meet these strict criteria and realize, you know, I, they're going to be judging me based on how you uh, act as a teacher and stuff like that. So that's why, yeah, I... I I get it. Unfortunately, natural man just has that inclination. Um, Troy, I, one thing I just want to ask you, and it, it's not, um, I know that you're within the Orthodox church and that sort of thing. And I liked what you said about how we're supposed to like, uh, not just believe a, an authority or a leader and stuff and, and search for ourselves and that sort of thing. Um, I just wanted to ask you about something in my research on the Sola Scriptura question I came across uh, the 1672 um, Synod of Jerusalem. Are, are you familiar with that? Not a, okay. So it's so it, this is a, an example of a local council, from my understanding. So I can't, I'm not judging orthodoxy on the basis of this thing, but I wanted to get your take on this because one of the things about the biblical canon is that they they explicitly say don't read the Bible for yourself. Just believe what we say. You're not even allowed to read it kind of thing. You're prohibited and will be, I don't know if they use, it's a specific thing um, where I quote it. So like what, what's going on there? Why is there this, at least in, centuries ago within the Catholic, but also in the Orthodox church, why is there this thing that's even saying like, no, be stupid. Don't read the Bible for yourself. Just trust that. Like you're not even allowed to read it. Like, do you know where that comes from and stuff or what that's What was the, just a follow-up question. What was the date of this thing that you're referencing? Uh, the 1672 okay. Synod of Jerusalem. I can, yeah. Okay. So I, 
I can't speak for Catholicism, I, but I can speak for Orthodoxy, not in an official capacity, but just from my experience. Um, one is that question um, seems to, if in our culture, in our context, where everyone is literate, or most people are literate, that makes perfect sense to question and uh, push back against. In a culture where there is very low levels of literacy, and before the printing press, the cost of a single volume of the Bible was like astronomical, $6,000 or something like that. So the expectation that the common layperson would understand scriptures would be able to read them at all, let alone be able to um, speak speak out of them in any official capacity is not that's an expectation that we have today because we all are literate. We all have access to those types of things. I, I, I think that that's bringing our modern context and applying it to a past thing in orthodoxy. No, the encouragement is everyone should have a Bible. Everyone should be reading it. Everyone should be questioning. Everyone should be as familiar as possible that study to show thyself approved. We're in a different context now. And so the expectation on the layperson is higher the expectation was lower because how we Christianity has educated the world, but that's not always been the case. And so in the process of waiting for all of the world to be educated or all of the modern world that our context to be educated, it's probably dangerous for people that don't have an education, don't aren't schooled and taught to be the ones expositing scripture. So that may have been why there was a warning there. Now, that's not a warning in the Orthodox Church. I can't speak for Catholicism. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Uh, hopefully thank that answers you. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I was just curious as, as to your take. So you, you're you kind of saying uh, it, it's in that low literacy culture. It would cause more damage, I guess, for people to be reading. And, and just in the interest of fairness, that was just a genuine question. So thank you so much for answering and, I'll admit Mitch Murphy is in the audience and he's saying that I was doing a gross misrepresentation of that. So just, just for fairness for the audience kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, I was curious as to what that was about. So I don't think it's a gross misrepresentation. I just think that if we're unfamiliar with the context, that it's a great question. It's yeah. a, well, what's the context of why they said that in the first place. And that's why I asked what, what was the date? And if you're talking about a, a synod um, that's in more of a Catholic realm than the Orthodox realm, 400 years ago, when still at that point, most people would have been illiterate, there might be some context behind that warning. And there might be some help behind that warning 400 years ago. Is it canon? Is it prescriptive? Probably not. I do like what you said about Christianity educating the world. One of the, and I'll, I'll end uh, tonight's session on this note, is the aspect of what modern missionaries are doing in, in uh, Papua New Guinea right now is before they can even do much with uh, uh, spreading the gospel and all that, what they do, and 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 I think this is the one of the best ways to to do this is. They insert themselves into the culture. They educate 
the people. For, so first they have to learn their language. And then they have to to uh, 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 be able to uh, basically write the Bible in their language. They have to teach them hygiene. You know, um, that's one big aspect to a developing uh, culture is hygiene, right? Is and, and they have to to teach them literacy, but they have to go about it in a way to where they learn their culture. They have to uh, supply. You, you know their medical needs and, and get them hygienically uh, uh, sound, and then they can start inserting the preaching and stuff like that, and start discipling. But they they basically are working from like the bare knuckles of of everything, and I think that's been the beauty of Christianity even throughout the ages is that uh, we have established the hospitals, we have established uh, the educational centers and stuff like that. And I just think that's that's a, a beautiful thing, yeah. you know. So, um, yeah, a, a lot of that I do think is is in there. We do see even some problems within uh, America today, where uh, the biblical illiteracy is like way up there, right? And you can get these backyard and and Troy, you, you probably can speak to this too. And hey, hold on before we speak to anything else. <sighs> We have something really awesome just happened. So the baby. I don't wait. Make sure it's okay with Tyler first. Tyler. Hey Tyler. Yeah. Would it be cool if I let the the listeners know since we're live? I can't hear you. What? All right, everybody. Uh, Tyler officially has another daughter. Hey! Yay! Yay. Awesome! Congratulations, brother! Congratulations! Congratulations, Congrats. little baby! Aww. Perfect! Perfect time! Perfect! <laughs> perfect! Man, perfect! What a way! We were about to close out, bro. This is wonderful. That's awesome! Awesome stuff! Awesome stuff! <laughs> so Tyler was here tonight, sort of. all right right on sorry go on guys (laughs) yeah so basically yeah that's you know we have this experience where when the scriptural literacy rate is totally bad and and like grossly uh uh underdeveloped we get backyard preachers and i you know i'm not saying anything against them because there's some probably really good ones but the ones that don't know their bible that think they know their bible they could just plant a church anywhere and lead a whole congregation to the doorways of hell you know what i mean so it's it's very real so i i get that answer i think uh uh, the beauty of christianity educating the world is something that i i would love to in this uh, podcast on um but I'll, I'll let it go around the table one more time uh josh got any closing statements oh man i that i'm so happy right now my entire thought train has been derailed and i'm ready to cry so i have nothing to add except tyler mm-hmm. god bless you bro man yeah. and yes. yes absolutely brother we are so happy for you and your baby just made this whole open mic a uh a, a blessing you know so um, Dale, uh, any closing thoughts, brother? 
Yeah, just say congratulations to you, Tyler, again. Um, great job. I know you'll be a, a great dad, uh, just as you are with the other kids. Um, but yeah, th thanks for inviting me, David. Uh, it was a good show. Um, I enjoyed yeah. talking about Daniel Mine and Messianic Prophecies. That's always something I enjoy talking about. So uh, yeah, that part was great and dealing with uh, abuse and stuff like that. So I hope we, I hope I contributed something that was uh, valuable. Or well, if you weren't for Canada, then I would say yes. But because you're from Canada, no, I'm just, <laughs> just totally. No, what? Me and Troy are going to come up against you. <laughs> uh, Jordan, man, any closing remarks, brother? Uh, yeah, just uh, congrats again to uh, Tyler, and it's good to be on here. Good listening to everyone. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm also very passionate about. Well, I'm very passionate about prophecy in general, but also messianic prophecy because, you know, it does. I think it does really bear a good witness for unbelievers because I think that's one of our greatest. Um, one of our greatest proofs for God and everything. So, yeah, just uh, thanks for everyone and thanks for letting me on here. Just that, Jordan, do you do you have like a YouTube or like a podcast or anything or? I, I I have a YouTube channel, but um, it's I don't I don't post on there anymore. Uh, you know, I was thinking about doing like a podcast, but I don't know. I haven't really f felt led to do that quite yet. Uh, I don't know. Maybe in the future. Fair enough. Fair enough. Cool. Right on, Troy. Go ahead, man. Any closing remarks, brother? No, I I think this. I only got the last little bit of this conversation, so but I, I really appreciate the the context of this group and being able to have those push back and talk back and forth. That is it's really helpful because you get to a lot of people can't process their thoughts alone. And having a good group of people that come from various different perspectives, throwing ideas out there and not exp without the expectation of being stoned when they say it. I love it. This is this I love you guys. I may never have met you in person, never shaken your hand or given you a hug, but I love you guys. Well, thank you. We man. love you we too, twin. Uh, by the way, by the way, Troy, are you going to be on here for the 26th, bro? Uh, so far, I don't have anything on the schedule, so I would love to be. Cool. Be next uh next episode of Cosmic Corners coming up on the 26th and Troy will be back on there. So, if anybody liked what he had to say, come check that out. He's uh He's been a pretty regular guest on that segment, so we're having a good time. All right. And next week, guys, we've got Evan Mitten coming on for uh, making the maximal uh, argument for Jesus' resurrection attractive. That's going to be awesome. I'm really excited to hear what he has to say. He just gave a, uh, his first speech uh, about it in New Orleans at an apologetics conference, so that's going to be awesome. I'm, uh, like, I'm really looking forward. I love resurrection arguments. Uh, I love both sides of that that coin so um i'm ready for it and then on february i think it's the second we got dr philip carey coming on and we're going to be discussing the classical view of the problem of evil it's based off of his essay in the book the four views i believe it's the four views of might be five of the problem of evil <laughs> so um yeah we're gonna have him on to discuss that i'm really looking forward to that as well and that's pretty much a month we got for you guys of content coming out while Tyler was even on vacation and stuff. And I got some other things in the works, but 
we'll have to wait till those are set in stone. So, but I'm personally, as David is is going to be focusing a little bit more on the problem of evil as I'm, you know, getting my thesis ready uh, for the theological philosophical response to the problem of evil. And I'm learning that there's a lot more people that that actually do have theological uh, uh, based theodicies, which are really interesting because coming up in uh, uh, inundated in, in philosophy myself, I've really been struggling with just listening to purely uh, philosophical uh, 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 answers to it, but with like kind of like a, a theological spin, you know, I want something that's more rooted in theology. And that's what I'm trying to look uh, to bring and balance the two in my thesis. So I'm going to be focusing on a series that is basically going to go over those. I'm looking even to get an open theist's idea on it too. Um, I'm going to try to get a hold of somebody that uh, um, I've heard of that, that actually has a view on that from an open theist perspective, even though I don't agree on open theism, but uh, I do want to hear what the response would be to the problem of evil so um yeah so look looking forward to all that guys uh, that's oh go ahead dale uh just as a real seekers announcement uh because i think this is going to be uh interesting to some in the audience hopefully but next week i am doing a tag team debate so two christians me and mm. travis worth versus two atheists um so that'll be david johnson from skeptics and seekers and jordan um i don't know his last name but uh, your friend David Russell Jordan, Jordan uh, from yeah from Reason to Doubt on the existence of God. So we've each selected one argument. Obviously, the Christians uh, two arguments in favor of God's existence, and then uh, the atheists have picked out two arguments against. Uh, so the problem of evil, which uh, Russell's into, uh, is going to be one of them. So yeah, tune into that, and uh, yeah, should be good times. Right on, right on. Well, guys, that's it for the night. Uh, thank you for being here, Josh. Thanks for hanging out a little bit longer. Uh, we didn't expect the news to come right yet, but it did. And congratulations, <laughs> Tyler. And as Tyler would say, guys, good night. God bless and stay like Christ. We're quoting that phrase and I'm going to put it on a T-shirt.